0: Jennifer vanished sometime in the overnight hours. Right now, there is no trace. Investigators say evidence leads them to believe that she's dead. Stick my nose back on the trail. That's all I can do. This is already gone. Already gone. Already gone. Dr. Alan Canty was a highly regarded psychologist. He was easygoing, bright, and a patient man who cared deeply for his clients. But he was also the type who needed control over his life. Al had to be the big man in his personal relationships, especially the ultra-secret one he had with a young sex worker. Al had no way of knowing that this relationship and need for control would lead to his ultimate downfall. To understand how a respectable psychologist became a victim of the underworld, we have to go back to Al's childhood. So come with me to Michigan in the 1930s, when Al's story began. W. Allen Canty, Jr. was born November thirtieth, 1933, in the city of Detroit. We have quite a bit of insight into Al's childhood, thanks to his eventual wife, Dr. Jan Canty. She wrote in her book, A Life Divided, that his mother, Gladys, was unendingly polite and prim and proper. His father, Al Sr., was articulate, decisive, and confident. While also being complicated, introverted, and brooding, he habitually corrected people's grammar and preferred lecturing over listening. Al Sr. was a self-trained, bachelor-level forensic psychologist for the Detroit Police Department. He let everyone call him Dr. Canty, even though he never attended graduate school and his doctorate was honorary. Al Jr. grew up in a house with no family photographs. His family did not talk about their lives. They didn't talk about their feelings, their worries, their regrets. Nothing. Instead of conversations, Al Sr. would play tapes from his interviews with criminals while Al Jr. and Gladys listened. After graduating high school, Al went on to complete a Ph.D. in psychology, unlike his father. His private practice was located in Detroit's prestigious Fisher Building. And for a time, Al also worked as a consultant for St. Clair County Community Mental Health Services and the Blue Water Mental Health and Child Guidance Clinic. Roger Facione, director of Community Health, told the Times-Herald paper that Al always worked very hard and always did what was asked of him. He always showed concern for his patients. Reflections of him are of an outstanding professional and psychologist. We had nothing but the highest regard for his work. Andrew Anderson, executive director of Blue Water, told the Herald, We enjoyed our relationship with him. He was a very easy person to be around. He was well-respected by our staff. According to UPI, Al was also a frequent talk show guest who hypnotized witnesses in the fruitless search for missing Teamsters union leader, Jimmy Hoffa. The Petoskey News Review reported that in 1975, Jimmy Hoffa's family hired Al to hypnotize several men to help them recall names Hoffa mentioned before he disappeared. Unfortunately, Al didn't recover anything of use because Hoffa was never found. By the spring of 1972, Al was looking to hire someone to type his new book. Word made its way to a young woman named Jan, who was about to enter her sophomore year at Wayne State University. She planned to double major in psychology and English with an emphasis in art history. So Jan applied for the job, and Al agreed to meet with her. Jan had mixed first impressions of Al, who was 18 years her senior. He was refreshingly easygoing, animated, bright, and patient, but bungling and hesitant to maintain eye contact. His cadence was reminiscent of Charlie Chaplin, and he had a very dated sense of style. Black-rimmed bifocals, a golf shirt, shapeless khaki pants, practical shoes, and an old wristwatch. Within 30 minutes of meeting, Al offered Jan the job, and she accepted. At first, she was going to type the book at home. But about three weeks in, Al asked Jan to work in his office. She eventually became his receptionist, which came with a raise, something a poor college student like Jan really needed. Over time, Jan and Al's relationship turned romantic. Jan later told the Detroit News that she was infatuated with Al. She said, he was 18 years older than me, and I was impressed by him. Jan and Al later married. According to The Sun-Times reporter Max Haynes, Al and Jan lived in a Tudor-style home in the classy Detroit suburb of Gross Point Park. Jan went on to complete a doctoral program in psychology in the early 80s. Jan was then accepted into a very prestigious fellowship program. She had no idea that it was the beginning of the end of her marriage. Jan told the Detroit News that she now realizes Al was the kind of man who needed to be the authority. He needed to be Big Daddy. The women he was drawn to, including myself, were women without resources, women who weren't very sophisticated. He wanted to be needed and admired. Jan said the more I grew into an independent, educated woman, the less interest he had in me. So, he sought out others. Al started canceling lunch dates with me. He was evasive, short. I didn't know what it was, but I knew he was holding something back. I'm thinking, is he gambling? Is there another woman? So I confronted him, but he denied there was anything going on. Jan knows now that Al was lying to her. There was something going on. Al was missing lunch dates because he had somewhere more important to be, the Cass Corridor, Detroit's red-light district. Al hired numerous sex workers, but by the end of 1983, he had become sweet on one in particular, 18-year-old Dawn. They met on November 30th, Al's 50th birthday. Jan had been out of town trying to recover from her third bout of mononucleosis, so Al thought he'd go to the corridor as a birthday present to himself. And Al has no idea that this is the beginning of the end. So it's Al's 50th birthday, and he's about to meet the young woman that will change his life and his future. And when they met the first time, Al introduced himself to Dawn as Dr. Al Miller, a hospital physician and widower. Dawn knew Al was using an alias, but she pretended to believe him. She didn't care what Al said as long as he was paying. Born in January 1965, Dawn Marie Spence grew up in Harper Woods, Michigan. Her parents didn't have a good relationship. They were often gone from the house. When her father was home, he would physically abuse Dawn and control her activities, like not letting her talk on the phone. By the time she finished junior high, Dawn was using marijuana and mescaline to cope with her home life. As she got older, men started paying more attention to her. In her book, A Life Divided, Jan described Dawn as having a waterfall of glossy, brownish-red hair parted in the middle, a pouty lower lip, flawless skin, and large doe eyes framed with dense lashes. Dawn liked it when men were nice to her, spent time with her, and paid attention to her. According to Jan, at an alarmingly young age, Dawn cultivated a shrugging indifference to life, bitterness, and she learned how to turn on the charm when useful. Two months before high school graduation, Dawn, who was tired of the physical abuse she suffered at her father's hands, moved out of her family home and moved in with her boyfriend, Donnie. Donnie lived in the cast Corridor, and it wasn't long before he started physically abusing her as well. While living together, Donnie told a friend that Don was skilled at fleecing men with this poor, innocent me bit. She could rap. She really had a mouth on her. And not long after that conversation, Donnie and Don hosted a party at their apartment. One guest told Donnie, Hey, I know a couple guys who'd pay her. Dawn overheard this conversation, but she wasn't upset. She was actually into the idea. Donnie started working as her pimp, and Dawn quickly found out that she didn't mind her new job. Working the street in the Cass Corridor in 1983 is how 18-year-old Dawn met 36-year-old John Carl Lucky Fry a pimp with a reputation for keeping his girls in line, using serious threats and extreme violence. Born in August of 1946, John grew up near the northwest Tennessee-Kentucky border. His father was physically abusive, beating his son with fists, handles of axes, really anything in reach. But his mother never intervened, probably because she was terrified her husband would turn his rage on to her. Because of his home life, John grew to hate authority more than anything in the world. Jan wrote in her book that John was impatient, corrosive, arrogant, aggressive, and quite controlling. To him, people were little more than inconvenient, two dimensional moving objects. John obtained what he wanted through extortion, intimidation, theft, and deceit. And if you tried to lay a finger on him, he would become hulk like smashing whatever or whoever was around him, and sometimes it would take multiple men to pull him off. By age 13, John was smoking marijuana and drinking six-packs. By his early 20s, he would be using heroin, cocaine, pretty much anything he could get his hands on. His rampant drug use led to him unknowingly contracting hepatitis C. John dropped out of high school, then had a short stint in the military where he was court-martialed twice. In 1967, when his mother died, John was sentenced for desertion and given a dishonorable discharge. After leaving the Army, John became a counterfeiter, committing robberies as a side hustle. Starting in 1969, he was in and out of prison for convictions including writing bad checks, conspiracy counterfeiting, assault, and breaking and entering. In the early 80s, at a time when he wasn't behind bars, John joined a motorcycle club. During his time there, he got 17 tattoos, including white power in block letters across the backs of his arms. In 1983, John moved to Cass Corridor, where he quickly started working as a pimp. Jan wrote in her book, his scruffy appearance and reputation alone dissuaded assaults on the young sex workers which fortified his bloated ego. See, John saw himself as a protector of women, although he had no problem physically abusing them if he felt they crossed him in any way. The same year he started in the cast Corridor, he laid eyes on 18-year-old Dawn for the first time. According to the Sun-Times, John thought Dawn had what it takes to be a successful sex worker. Looks, figure, and a larcenous heart. John told Dawn's boyfriend-slash-pimp, Donnie, that he wanted to sponsor Dawn. And it wasn't long before Dawn left Donnie altogether and was with John full-time. They were a good match, I mean, in the sense that they had the same goals, which is scam people to get money for drugs. On November thirtieth, 1983, Al celebrated his 50th birthday by hiring Dawn. They met at Temple Hotel, where rooms could be rented out by the half hour. When they were finished doing the deed, Al tipped generously and said he wanted to meet again. Dawn agreed right away because she wanted to get more money out of her wealthy new customer. Al and Dawn ended up meeting three times that first week. John could tell that Al was infatuated with Dawn, and he wanted to use that to his advantage. So when Dawn was arrested on December 7th for solicitation, John decided to see if he could get Al to foot the bail money. Lo and behold, the rich doctor agreed to pay Dawn's $250 bond, which is the equivalent of just over $700 today. Before the year was up, Don decided to test the boundaries even more by asking Al for $300. He ended up giving her $1,000. It became clear at that point Dawn and John had Al hook, line, and sinker. Al and Don's relationship grew to the point where they saw each other almost every day over Al's long lunch break. To keep things as minimally suspicious as possible... Al never spent the night with Dawn, and he never saw her on Sundays. They never kissed, they didn't hold hands. They did have sex, just not that often. Instead, Al preferred to lavish Dawn with money, drugs, cars, houses, bail money. You name it, remember, Al wants to be Big Daddy. So over the course of 18 months, Al would spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on Dawn. It's estimated that in the first year, he spent over $140,000, which is nearly $400,000 in today's money. According to the Sun Times, when John realized Al was going to keep the cash flowing, he upgraded permanently to cocaine and spent most of his time thinking up new ways for Dawn to extract money from her sugar daddy. As you'd expect, Al didn't like John's presence. He wanted to be alone with Dawn, not alone with Dawn and John. Sometimes Al would even pay John to leave him and Dawn alone. Jan wrote in her book, A Life Divided, that in early April 1984, Al showed up at Dawn and John's house and asked John, So, what would it take for you to bow out? How much money? John took Dawn aside and asked if she wanted to leave and go be with Al, and Dawn said no. But neither one of them wanted to alienate Al. He was their cash cow. So they decided to scam him by saying that John would leave them alone for a steep price. Of course, John had no intention of actually leaving. John and Al started bartering for Dawn and decided it would cost $5,000, or just over $14,000 in today's money. For John to leave and never speak to Dawn again. It was agreed that Al would make the full payment on April 13th. When that day arrived, Al did pay the full amount, but then he suffered a psychotic break. Around one twenty p.m., Jan got a call from Al's mom saying Jan needed to get to the office quickly because something was wrong with Al. When Jan showed up, she found her husband confused and silent. He seemed like a robot. He was pale, sweating, staring, hyperventilating, and drooling. Jan took Al to the trauma center, and it was decided he would go to a specific hospital the next day. If he worsened overnight, Jan could take him back to the emergency room. That night over dinner, Al muttered aimlessly, saying things like, You are snow. Cass, Have I been bad? Did I stand tall? And that last one, did I stand tall? That was something his mother always said. Al did make it through the night, and the next day Jan took her husband to the hospital. On the way, he said things like, Am I bad? $5,000? Jan had no idea what her husband was talking about. She thought maybe he forgot to pay their taxes. Once at the hospital, doctors ran a battery of tests on Al. His toxicology came back negative, and all medical tests led nowhere. Doctors were unsure what was going on, so they interviewed Jan, who explained that Al had grown preoccupied and distant. He'd started missing deadlines and would do things like leaving the refrigerator door open. Jan said Al had been working long hours, so she thought maybe that was it. He was working too much. The doctors asked more questions, but none of them led to any answers. With Al in the hospital, Jan cleaned up his office. That's when she found a bunch of bills with past-due stamps on them. This was something Jan had never seen before. She didn't understand how they were behind considering Al had been working longer hours. Jan paid what she could, but she didn't even make a dent in the $6,000 debt, so she went to Al's mom, who helped them out. In early May of 1984, Al was discharged. Jan decided she would ask about the finances later, when he was fully recovered. For now, he was to take it easy. But they ended up getting into an argument, and once again, Al played off Jan's concerns, telling her nothing was wrong. Following the hospitalization, Al grew even more distant from his wife. And with John and Dawn, Al continued handing money over to them. He didn't mention anything about how John was supposed to be leaving him and Dawn alone. Because of this, John started referring to Al as the chump behind his back. By the time November rolled around, John and Dawn knew Al was lying about being a physician at a hospital. They knew he worked in the Fisher Building, but they didn't know exactly what he did for a living. They also knew that Al was married. His wife had not died, like he said. The scammers were mad that Al was duping them. They vowed to learn everything they could about the man getting one over on them, where he lived, the layout of his house, his real last name, etc. Around May of 1985, John and Don moved into a two-bedroom house in the 2,500 block of Casper Street in southwest Detroit. Al paid the $450 deposit and $225 for the first month's rent. Al also let Dawn use his credit card to furnish the new house. At this point, Dawn's drug habit was completely out of control. She was pretty sick, but Al never stopped supplying her with the cash she needed to buy drugs. One day, while visiting the Casper Street house, Al found a piece of paper containing his real name, business address, and home address. He knew he'd been found out but he had no idea how to get out of this situation. In the weeks leading up to Al's murder, Jan noticed a few unnerving events around the house. Drunk dials around midnight from a man with a southern accent asking for some woman. Being followed all the way home on at least two occasions. A stranger stopping in front of the house asking, Is this where Dr. Alan Canty lives? Three fresh cigarette butts under the kitchen window, as if someone had been standing there, looking inside the house. Jan told Al about these events, but he dismissed them as meaningless. On the morning of July thirteenth, nineteen 1985, Al went to work at his office in the Fisher Building. At some point, he got a call from Dawn, who said she needed money. Al was not happy to receive this call. Just because she knew his true identity did not mean she could call him at work. It was crossing the line, and he told her so. After leaving his office around 6.30 that night, Al went to Dawn and John's place on Casper Street. The trio hung out in a bedroom while Dawn used a syringe to inject cocaine. When she was done, she passed everything over to John and then ran to the bathroom. It was at that point that John asked Al for more money and for the first time in 18 months, Al said no. John was never one to take no for an answer, so an argument broke out. After hearing the arguing intensifying, Don left the bathroom and stood near the bedroom door. According to the book Masquerade by Lowell Caulfield, as she looked into the bedroom, Don saw that Al was eye-to-eye with John, yelling, It's my money. I can give it, or I can take it. I can do whatever I want to do. If you don't like it, fuck you. I don't have to justify anything I do to you. Then Al tried to get through the doorway, but John was standing there, so Al used one arm to push his shoulder. John's calf hit a stool, which caused him to fall over. This enraged John, who then grabbed a Louisville slugger. He hopped up on his feet and struck Al in the head at least four times. After seeing the first strike, Dawn ran from the house. She eventually went back, and John told her she had to leave and go make some money. So Dawn left again and met with two clients. While she was gone, John decided to move Al's body to the bathtub. He slit Al's throat to try and drain some blood. Then he took Al's black Buick to go find Dawn. They bought some cocaine and heroin, then went back to their place. That's when John said they needed to dismember Al's body. In the bathroom, John took off all his clothes and Al's, then got to work with a Ginsu knife. Don sat on the toilet, helping John wrap Al's body parts in newspaper, then placing them into separate garbage bags. Al's head, hands, and feet were put in a satchel. Other parts were kept simply in the garbage bags. The bathroom was cleaned and the carpet in the bedroom pulled up. Al's clothes and the baseball bat, they also went into a garbage bag. Then all the bags and the satchel were put in Al's Buick. John and Dawn spent the rest of their night driving the Buick to various locations to dispose of Al's body parts. On July 14th, Jan reported her 51 year old husband missing. She was very concerned because he never stayed out without telling her. The story of Al's disappearance made the news, and one of his acquaintances, Ray, told police about Al's relationship with a sex worker. He thought the woman's name was Dawn Spence. Detroit police knew that name. She'd been arrested numerous times for solicitation. They tracked down her Casper Street address and went over there. A search of the home proved helpful. It was clear that the occupants had fled the place after a crime occurred. Traces of blood were found on the edges of the bathtub. On the floor was a piece of paper with Al's real name and his address. John and Dawn hadn't picked it up before fleeing. Even more suspicious, neighbors told investigators they saw the couple putting trash bags in Al's Buick late at night. Investigators asked Jan to come to the station. They told her they'd found Al's name and address in a house on Casper Street. Before Jan could even ask what that meant, the detectives asked her if the couple had money problems. According to her book, A Life Divided, she replied, yes, he won't talk about it, he's evasive. When he was hospitalized, I found unpaid bills. I've tried many times to... Why do you ask, what does money have to do with Al not coming home? Then the detectives asked if she'd felt followed in the last few weeks, and she told them that yes, she had. Jan asked what that had to do with Al's disappearance, and they told her they believed Al was dead, but they hadn't located a body. Two days later, on the night of July 16th, the burned-out wreckage of Al's Buick Regal was found in a vacant field in southwest Detroit. Investigators changed Al's case from missing persons to homicide. On July 18th, Detective Gil Hill told the media, We are investigating this like a homicide, even though we don't have a body because we don't like the circumstances. It wasn't long before detectives received numerous solid tips. A friend of John's, Tamara, told investigators that before Al's disappearance, John bragged about how he was going to get a final payment of $20,000 to $30,000 from Al. When she saw him after Al disappeared, John told her, Something terrible happened over the weekend. Things backfired. We didn't get the money. John's neighbor, Michael, said that several days before Al went missing, he heard John tell another man that he was going to kill the fucking doctor. On July 20th, John called his Aunt Dot to tell her that he was coming by. Well, Aunt Dot called her neighbor a police officer who then radioed for backup. When Dawn and John showed up at Dot's, they were arrested without incident. News of the couple's arrest made the papers. A friend of John's, Frank, went to the police to come clean about something. He had helped John cover up Al's murder. Frank didn't particularly want to go to the police, but he also didn't want to get in major trouble. Frank had only helped John because he was absolutely terrified of the man. In exchange for immunity, Frank confessed to torching Al's car and helping John bury the satchel, which contained Al's head, hands, and feet. Frank gave detectives the location of the satchel, which was buried in the woods off Douglas Lake Road in northern Emmett County, not far from the resort town of Petoskey. According to the Times-Herald, after her arrest, Dawn told detectives that she watched John hit Al with a baseball bat. Then, she helped clean up after he dismembered Al's body. John took all the blame for everything. When he was told that Frank led police to Al's head, John told them where to find the rest of his remains. On July 22, 38-year-old John was charged with first-degree murder and mutilation of a body. 20-year-old Don was charged with accessory to murder and mutilation. They both pleaded not guilty. The next day, Detective Richard Dungey told the media that this case was bizarre and unusual, ranks right up there with some of the most gruesome. On December third, 1985, opening statements for John and Don's trial began. This is kind of unusual. They were being tried together— but Judge Michael Sapala would decide Dawn's fate, while a jury would decide John's fate. So whenever evidence regarding Dawn alone was introduced, the jury left the courtroom. The prosecution told the jury that Al was not a sympathetic character, but the man did not deserve to die. Al was killed because he tried to get out of the relationship, and John didn't want to lose his meal ticket. The plan was for John to request Al to pay him up to $30,000 to leave. He would say he was going to California to leave Dawn and Al alone. The truth was, John and Dawn were going to kill Al and then run off together. They didn't bank on the fact that Al was tired of being jerked around. He'd already paid John once to leave, and John was still there. John's defense told the jury that the only question for them to decide is the degree of his client's guilt. The defense said that John was guilty of no more than manslaughter. Al's death was the result of an infernal triangle of a sex worker, a street hustler, and Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Al used his psychology expertise and money to manipulate John and Dawn. The defense said a doctor of psychology giving money out to junkies knows what he's doing more money registers into more heroin. Al treated these people like toys. He twisted, 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 and twisted that spring until it broke. John took the stand in his own defense. He admitted to beating Al to death, saying he did it because he was so angry with Al for continuing to provide Dawn with drugs. John told the jury he had no concern for her and what we were trying to do, trying to get sober. Al would make fun of his and Don's efforts to get clean through the use of methadone. Al would tell the couple they were wasting their time. Once a dope fiend, always a dope fiend. John said that on the day Al was killed, he and Don both agreed to slow down their drug use. But then Al took Don to buy more drugs. When John confronted him about the drug use, Al dismissed him with an obscenity. John said, I got pissed. You know better, too. You're supposed to be helping. And he said, Fuck you. I don't have to justify anything I do to you. He shoved me to walk past. He had no concern for Dawn and what we were trying to do. So I grabbed the ball bat and I hit him. John said that he thought about calling the police to tell them he'd killed Al in self defense, but instead he decided to dismember Al's body because he was scared of going back to jail. On December 11th, after deliberating for less than three hours, the jury found John guilty of first degree murder and mutilation of a corpse. Dawn's bench trial continued the next day. Dawn's defense told the judge that she did what John told her to do he controlled her through drugs, manipulation, and threats. The defense had numerous people testify in order to prove that John was in complete control of Dawn and that she only helped him with the crimes because she was afraid. John's former girlfriend, Cheryl, the one who John and Dawn went to visit after the murder, testified that John frequently beat her, got her addicted to drugs, and forced her into sex work. One time, John beat Cheryl so badly that she was hospitalized for six weeks and had to have her spleen removed. Dawn also took the stand in her own defense, testifying that she stayed with John because she was scared. On December seventeenth, Judge Sapala found Dawn guilty of being an accessory after the fact. He dismissed the mutilation of a corpse count, saying Dawn only helped dismember Al because John ordered her to. On december twenty third, John was sentenced to life without parole. At the hearing, John asked the judge to be lenient with Dawn's sentence because she was more of a victim in the scenario than a perpetrator. John said he was sorry she got involved and that he was sorry for Dr. Canty. On January 2, 1986, Dawn was sentenced to 10 months in jail, including time served, three years of probation, and a drug treatment plan. While in jail, she would receive psychiatric and drug counseling. On March 19, 1986, Dawn was released from jail. She immediately entered a nine-month live-in drug treatment program which completely turned her life around. According to a 2016 Detroit News article, Dawn has been drug-free for years. She graduated from college with a degree in accounting, got married, and raised a family. In 1988, Detroit News staff writer Lowell Caulfield wrote Masquerade about Elle's murder. John told Caulfield that he was innocent. He questioned why he would kill the goose that laid the golden egg and he said he got mad when Al pushed him during an argument over Don's drug use. John wanted her to get clean, but Al wanted to keep her high and dependent on him. In 2016, Jan Canty told the Detroit News that she believes John's story, stating that Al needed people to depend on him. That was his nature. On September 15, 1995, John Carl Fry succumbed to hepatitis C while in Jackson Prison. He was 49 years old. And of course, there's always a little more to the story. Following her husband's brutal murder, Jan Canty struggled with the attention put on her. Everyone knew what had happened to Al, and it was just too much. Jan told the Detroit News, Initially, I was in a state of shock. I felt numb, like I was sleepwalking. I felt like a robot. It took a long time for what happened to really sink in. And once it did, I went from baffled and confused and sad that he had died to angry as hell. I wasn't really mortified when all of the details of his double life started coming out because I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. More than anything, I was mad. How dare he do this to himself and his family? Things did die down after a while, but then in 1988, Caulfield's book, Masquerade, came out, which stirred everything up again in Jan's life. She later told the Detroit News, I was tired of being known as the widow, tired of people feeling sorry for me. I figured the only way out of this mess was to change my name and leave the state. And listeners, that's exactly what she did. In 1990, she had to close her practice, sell her home, and move on from everyone she knew. For years, Jan kept her past a secret. Then, in 2016, she came forward, ready to tell her story. She told the Detroit News, Over the years, I realized I was paying an enormous price for leading a redacted life. During those years, Jan remarried, adopted two children, and continued working as a psychologist. Her life was good but she knew she couldn't keep running from the past. She told the Detroit News, I was sitting at a lecture at work, and the speaker made the point, when you have a secret or seal off part of your life, it takes a toll. That was a factor that prompted me to open up and tell my side. As part of her personal therapy, Jan wrote a book about Al's murder. It's called A Life Divided, and it was a major source for today's episode. I recommend that you check it out because there is so much more to this story. Jan told the Detroit News that she's still recovering from what she went through. You don't get over it like a cold. For the most part, you move on with your life, but there are certain things that jar you back into it. She's never forgiven Al for what he did. She said, I believe forgiveness needs to be earned. I do not wish to give more to someone who already took too much from me. Today, you can find Jan hosting The Domino Effect of Murder, a podcast for and about other homicide survivors. I hope you'll check it out. I'm Nina Instead, the producer and voice behind the Already Gone podcast. I appreciate you listening, and please be safe.